What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. People should be able to put whatever the hell they want to in their own bodies, especially if they're dying. That's 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 the fact I see. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What's up, Liberty lovers, and welcome back to the best way to start your week, and that is here on the original flagship Lions of Liberty podcast every single Monday where I talk liberty with all sorts of guests, and I'm really excited to bring you today's interview because it was sort of a lost interview. I had some computer issues a few weeks ago, and uh, this one kind of got lost in the shuffle. I had the debate shows that were already scheduled, so now I'm getting back to bringing you my interview with Stephen Clyde, the host of the Peace and Liberty podcast. I'm really excited to bring you this really great conversation today. First, got to remind you, if you're new to this program, it's not just me here at the Lions of Liberty podcast bringing you great interviews and roundtables every single Monday. You've also got my man Brian McWilliams bringing you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land while John Odermatt wraps things up every Friday with his look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. That's right. You get three whole podcasts for the price of one, and that price is zero because this is a free show. Of course, you can also support us on Patreon. We are working hard to gather some more funds for our upcoming trips to Porkfest and the Libertarian National Convention in New Orleans and hoping to bring you some great content from there. So every single dime helps, and we've had some amazing content lately. I did a couple Ask Me Anythings uh, while I was on the road last week. We had a new Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, the first one that was exclusively for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our support on Patreon. We also had a video version of that, so you can actually see all six Lions of Liberty drinking and chatting Liberty for an hour or so. That is exclusively over on Patreon, so please do head over to patreon.com slash Liberty. We also had a brand new League of Liberty with our friend Roger Paxton, Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians, and Johnny Adams from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, and a brand new Conspiracy Corner will be coming very, very shortly. So, no shortage of content, whether it's just hitting that subscribe button to get all three episodes here every single week, or if you're craving even more, you can support us again on Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. like to remind you before we continue that this is the 350th episode of this program. You'll actually hear me reference having done 347 or so episodes in my conversation with Stephen as this was originally scheduled to air a few weeks ago, but turns out it's going to be 350, a bit of a milestone-sounding number, so I'm excited to bring this to you. You can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 350. Without further ado, let's get ready to roar, baby. All right, with me now is the host of the Peace and Liberty podcast. That is a daily Monday to Friday podcast, by the way, which I find quite impressive. He is also a contributor over at ActualAnarchy.com. I'm very pleased to be speaking to Stephen Clyde. Stephen, are you ready to roar? 
Yes, I am. Thanks for inviting me on, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And you are, uh, I mentioned a couple things you have your hands in there, but you have a lot going on. I'm always seeing posts from you on Facebook. Uh, you're crashing uh, events with Madeline Albright. We can touch on that <laughs> later. You are a very, very active libertarian, and you're doing all of this while you're in college. So that that's very impressive. And we'll talk about all the projects that you've got going on in a, in a bit. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? How did you first get involved in politics? And how did you find yourself wrapped up in all this crazy libertarian stuff? Oh, I have a pretty similar story to most. Um, going into college, I was definitely a socialist. Uh, going against my conservative parents, I think you know one thing I hear leftists say a lot is that my parents were conservative. I come from a conservative town, so most of the leftists in my college just are rebelling. Um, so I was a socialist when I went into college. I had a economics teacher. I think it was my second or third semester, and that changed my life. He told me about scarcity and a few basic things and crushed this leftist who who asked him, uh, you know, why, why can't we just print more money? And he crushed her. So that got me into politics. Um, how did it get into libertarianism? I think I think I just saw Ron Paul on TV and I was just like, who is this guy? Because I didn't necessarily agree with what he was saying at first. He was saying things like uh, we should bring the troops home and we should uh, stop spending all these all the, all this money overseas and inside our country and, and everywhere. But he was he was saying it in a way where like I didn't agree with him, but I hold on, I just never heard this feed before. So I got into Ron Paul and I started listening to him and just from there, um, I just got into economics and history in general. And that just really, really changed my life because I I wonder every single day, Mark, where would I have been if I didn't take that one economics class? Because keep in mind I took like sociology classes and English classes and I had the most left of leftist teachers, right? I mean so that's pretty much my short story of how I got involved in libertarianism. I think I became more active in the past two years. And just for anyone listening, you know, there's nothing really special about me. I'm I'm very smart. I, I have a really good memory, but I, I definitely don't have a genius IQ. All all there is to me is I read books every single day. And I, I really do pride myself in that. Um, I, I probably read like 100 books at a time because I have ADD. But I mean, I, I'm always, always reading, always absorbing information. And knowledge is power. That's a cliche phrase, but literally knowledge is power in that um, if you see me debate with people on Facebook, some people message me and are just like, damn, dude, like, is that dude still alive? He just completely destroyed him. He didn't know what to say. It's just like, well, I'm just repeating fact after fact. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it starts to compile in your brain and you start to just become reactive. So I, right. I try to train people to be better libertarians. Um, I, I think some people, unfortunately, go down dark paths and they just miss like a key point like you, you misunderstand what the nap is and like your whole philosophy is screwed up like what what kind of libertarian could you possibly be so i know i've gone on for a bit uh, but that's then fun. you're uh, then you're gary johnson yeah <laughs> <laughs> or it just goes over your head uh fiscally conservative and uh, i'm socially liberal and that's what a libertarian is i it's the best of this and the best of that. Uh, but it's really interesting that kind of much like Ron Paul stood out on that Republican debate stage, mostly because he was saying, like you said, you didn't necessarily agree what he was saying, um, but it was the boldness that of, of the way he said those things that it was such conviction. Oh, that, yeah. And it was so different than what everybody else around him on that stage was saying because he was really breaking the mold of what is ex considered acceptable political debate. Right. And it's kind of interesting. It sounds like that professor of yours that kind of got you thinking a little bit differently about politics it's similar to, you know in a similar way i'm sure you were hearing a lot of other sort of nonsense and a lot of other economic ideas that that oh, and, that yeah. didn't you know kind of that stuck with the sort of the mainstream line whereas this professor was actually saying something very different to you and that just saying something so vastly different than what you're hearing in the cackle out there can really you know really inspire people to at least try to figure out why is this person saying things so different why are they right. so outside the norm and, and once you actually 
delve into the reasons, you start to say, okay, well, maybe that's because there's some truth to this and there's actually something here. Yeah, I remember when I first found out about Ron Paul, I told my dad, and my dad's like, oh, yeah, I've known about Ron Paul for the 80s. He's pretty good, but he hates Israel. And <laughs> that, that, that thought just, like, stuck with me for a few years, and I'm just like, huh, like, he hates Israel. And obviously he's referring to, like, what he said on the debate stage, like, you know, I, I would take funding away from even Israel. Even Israel, just I would take funding, I, I would stop uh, foreign aid. And that's taken as him being anti-Semitic. And, you know, you have this big sh- debate going on with Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro says that uh, if you don't support the state of Israel, uh, you're anti-Semitic, which is a little bit it's a little bit odd to put people in that category, because once you're in that category, if you want to pull all foreign aid away, you're anti-Semitic. You hate you hate the 15 million pop, uh, world population of Jews. And Ron Paul had such a great point when people would bring that up. He would say, yeah, but I also want to take the foreign aid away from all of Israel's enemies that we harm as well. Oh, so how am I too. only against Israel here? He would also say things like the two main principles of Zionism are uh, self-reliance and independence. He would also say things like that, and people seem to miss that. <laughs> how old were you actually when you discovered Ron Paul? Because like I said, you're 25 years old right now, and you're in college. And was it the 2012 campaign? Or, I mean, during 2008, you would have been in, in high school. So what what age were you actually when which which campaign was that? Oh, that was the 2008 campaign for sure. Wow. Um, so you're in high school when you're when you're hearing all this stuff, and I, I I'm just kind of curious. Like I was in my mid 20s when I started when you know those, these campaigns came out, and I, I ended up meeting a lot of people around my age that got sucked into that Ron Paul campaign. But I'm curious how that translated in the the sort of high school environment. Were there any other high school kids that were learning about Ron Paul, or were you kind of alone on an island there, as as libertarians can often feel? Oh, very alone. I mean, to this day, very alone. I think some sometimes I feel like my own libertarian friends are the ones on Facebook, but I think that's personally what made me want to start a podcast and like really get out there because look, I, I, I love my libertarian friends. You're all great, but we all agree with each other already. I, I What we really need to focus on is like, you know, you're most likely not going to um, convert a communist. I've learned that lesson. You're most likely not going to convert someone whose military goes back three generations, maybe just a, a, sm- a smaller chance. You have a great deal. Of, you have a good chance of converting someone who is right there on the edge, someone that, you know, they, they maybe they're a little bit apolitical and they're just like, you know, they're looking for the truth. A lot of people are, are looking for the truth. You just got to tell them. Uh, for example, I was talking to my one friend the other day and she's a nurse. She just became a certified nurse. Obviously, she's very smart. She can treat you if you're dying for the most part. But she didn't know the history of the American Medical Association. Um, when I when I started telling her things like the Flexner report of 1910 reduced the amount of hospitals uh, from like 182 to 82 in a matter of years. And the reason was because it was, it was they were creating a cartel of medicine. So establishing these big medical licensing boards at each state. But the but the end result was Jews got kicked out of medicine. Blacks got kicked out of medicine. Women got kicked out of medicine because there was the big debate between allopathy and homeopathy. And it's kind of a matter of even if you think homeopathy is crackpot medicine, People should be able to put whatever the hell they want to in their own bodies, especially if they're dying. That's 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 the fact I see. So when you talk about like medicine, she didn't know any of this. They don't they don't teach the history of medicine in medical school. They teach you um, how to go by the book. So like when I when sure I, if they taught the history, people might start rethinking the entire oh, system. Well, and we can't have that. Well, let me just start by saying she says she's a registered Republican. That's the that's the first thing that threw me off because I told her the FDA kills people and. I wasn't being facetious. I was just telling her, like, the FDA kills people. That uh, Our medical system encourages people to go get a bunch of checkups, and it discourages good medicine. And, in fact, the FDA blocks a bunch of medicines from getting on the market. People are concerned about, like, EpiPen prices. Well, who do you, who do you, think, who do you think causes that? 
Who do you think causes a, a one company to be allowed to own EpiPens and be able to distribute it at a high cost? Well, it's people, this just goes over people's heads. And when I said the FDA kills people, she was very offended because she was like, you need um, some type of central, uh, you know, planners to make sure medicine is safe. So, so to her, no FDA equals no safe medicine, none at all. Right. That's so. Imagine the extent that goes to. It took me probably two hours of just fact after fact, until she's finally like she realizes that she's that she has no facts. I have a million, and she's just like, all right, she has to start to listen. It took me a long time to break her down. Like she just she's so um, inculcated with all this BS. I'm not gonna curse in your show, but just BS. That's how how else can you put it? So just this person specifically, did you add sort of make headway over time? Um. Have a talk Ish. to her. Have a talk to her in a while. I think she thinks I'm a little bit crazy, but I think maybe I laid too much on her at once, and she's just, and she's just like, wow, like he has a lot of good points, but like it sounds like he doesn't like anything the government does. <laughs> it is the great pl- problem of being a uh, a so-called, I guess, educated libertarian when you're absorbing so much information, and we all become so obsessed with so many oh, issues. I just want to find somebody, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Especially when you find someone in a certain niche like that, mm. and you you think, well, you know, they need to know this stuff. This is actually their industry. They're going to be interested, and they often will be interested. But sometimes we tend to just throw it all at them at once because it's just right there. And and to us, it's like you must know this. You must have this knowledge. Why can't you see? And oh, that yes. can often sober, sort of overlook people to the yeah. point that they just don't even want to listen at all. Absolutely. And if, it, if anyone's interested in that little medical history bit I gave, check out the book uh, The Primal Prescription by Bob Murphy and Doug McGuff. Doug McGuff is actually a doctor. Uh, Bob Murphy is the doctor of economics. What can I say? I love Bob Murphy. So uh, that's a good book. Check that out. You'll learn a lot. So, uh, you know, let's fast forward. Uh, and like you said, you're first in high school when you're, when you're hearing about this stuff. And now you're in college. What is it like being on a college campus and having libertarian ideas? Uh, it's been, well, let's just say I won't age myself. It's been a while since I've been on a college campus, though. So. I can explain it quite well. Have you ever seen an interview with a zombie with uh, Bob Murphy and Tom? Yes. yes okay. So, you know, the, we'll you know the role like that. Bob Murphy plays? Uh, that's right, pretty much like 25,000 plus students in my campus. Neo-Confederate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I post a lot of stories on my timeline, just like, you know, stuff that happens day to day. Some people are probably like, man, like this dude must make up stories. No, no, no. I always tell true stories. It's just like these people really these kids really say these crazy things. They have no idea what they're ever talking about. Um I could give you so many examples. Did you have anything to ask? Or I could just give you some examples. Hey, just fire away. Well, the other day someone was doing a presentation on homelessness. And one thing about Denver, we have a huge homeless population. It's really hard to tell. It seems like it's growing. You know, I've lived here a few years. Like, it does seem like it's growing, but there's no way to actually know how many homeless people there are. And let me just give you an example. If I'm, excuse me, if I'm couch surfing, am I considered homeless? Well, maybe. Um, If I live in, you know, the housing rules are really weird because if you live in someone's house for like two plus weeks in most states, like you're considered living there. So then do, do you become unhomeless? And the point being, there's too many factors. Like there's no possible way to to do an experiment to see how many homeless people there are. But she was saying things in her presentation like I remember she said like 53 percent of homeless people have college degrees. And oh, OK, I mean, that should throw anybody off. Because that, that was the highest statistic. Like out of out of all the things homeless people said, it wasn't like you know they had a bad childhood, blah blah blah. It was that like you know most of them had college degrees. That's that's their uh, environment they came from. So I, I just started asking her, what was the methodology used to do this experiment, and how many homeless people in Denver? And it's like I don't know, I don't know. Um, 
So well, it's your presentation. You might want to have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> so it, that one, that was just one. Um, another one. This girl was talking about how teachers' pay is too low, and this one was crazy because one kid raised his hand and he was just like, "Well, we just need to make sure that we get more politicians in that'll raise taxes." And trust me, Mark, uh, my blood was boiling. I, at I that imagine point. you just sitting on the edge of your seat, like, oh, trying to hold yourself back. My my response was probably at least semi facetious. Like I was so pissed, but like I was just like, "I'm gonna lay a fact on her and see what she does." So I was just like, "I'll give you the footnote later," but. How do you feel about the fact that for every $5 in taxes we pay, only $1 gets put to use because the other $4 get eaten up by things like overhead, uh, just the people that have to get paid along the way. And these kids are crazy, man. She starts nodding her head like, oh, yeah, that, that does make sense. It does seem like a lot of waste. And it's like, well, I was just pointing out to her that your argument's circular, right? If on one hand, the government's wasting the tax dollars that are supposed to go to teachers pay, um, you want to create a so you want to add a government regulation to the government. So I was, I was just pointing out that her argument's circular, and yeah, she she just didn't know what to say. She she started like agreeing with me, like yeah, that, that that makes sense, but she just didn't know what to say, right? Do you find you're able to? I mean, I know you started this podcast, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I mean, largely, and and th- totally, that was one of the effects for me. Is been that's been the most amazing thing about having this podcast for the last nearly five years has been meeting all these other libertarians and talking to all these other people. They're not just names who write an article or people that I might see do a Facebook post. They actually become real human beings that I talk to. And many of, many of which I end up actually interacting with in the real world out there. So that's pretty cool. I know that's one of the motivations for you starting your podcast. Uh, but what sort of, I guess, uh, what else you do to hope to achieve with the podcast itself um, in terms of your messaging and communicating ideas? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I, I have a lot of things going on right now me and a few friends i can't really talk about it but i'm just gonna say we're something top secret plans huh? yeah we're, we're collaborating on something something big is about to be unveiled um i won't say any names but just look forward to the, like the next month or two like big things are gonna happen but that's just one thing um i'm writing a few books right now it's just another thing but a I, few books <laughs> yeah yeah not yeah. happy with just working on one well, I'm working on like a magnum opus per se, so that might take me like 10 years to write. But I'm working on another book that I'm hopefully – I would like to just finish it in two months. If I can just – I think I might just take the next two months and just write two pages a day and I'll have my book because that's about how long my book's going to be. And uh, I'll be able to publish it – or not publish it. I'll have, maybe have it ready by the time I go to Mises University because I got a scholarship there. So I'm pretty happy if anyone's going to be at Mises University, nice. I'll be there. But um. Yeah, ho- hopefully I'll have my first book ready by in like two months. Very cool, very cool. And you mentioned before the show that you are an economics major there in college right now. And uh, so what is it like um, sort of having that libertarian perspective, being someone who's dived all the way into Rothbard, Mises, attending Mises University? But I'm sure along the way, in a lot of your courses, you hear a whole lot of required mumbo-jumbo that you must learn and recite as if it were gospel. So what sort of, uh, I guess, encounters have you had along those lines? Well, let me ask you something. What do you think a Marxist economics professor would teach? Uh, probably Marxist economics. No, I mean, <laughs> I have no idea, right? I mean, what what would a Marxist economics professor teach? Because usually really Marxists kind of usually have a disdain for economics, even though Marx wanted to have his uh, scientific uh, socialism. He kind of had a disdain for the way the real world worked because he hated the division of labor and just so on and so on. So I'll, I'll start off by saying that this is my first semester at uh, University of Colorado, Denver. And I do have an economics teacher. He says he's the only free market economist in the whole um, the whole school. So this is a lot of teachers. And he works alongside Marxists all day. And I ask him, like, how do you do it? But you got to understand, uh, 
to survive in most schools like this as a professor, you got to teach hardcore math. So economics is pretty much just all math. And I don't know if you're a fan of the Austrian school of economics. I am. But the Austrians argue that real economics isn't deduced from math. That doesn't even make sense. Real economics is deduced from uh, praxeology and the idea that humans act and you can't falsify that. It always drives me crazy when really in any sort of political debate or political conversation, when I hear people cite studies, I just hate studies. I hate everything about studies because they will put out these, you know, they'll try to tie unemployment or um, something of that nature to whatever policy, be it a tax rate in a certain locality or a minimum wage in a certain state. And then they will put out the study and it will have some number. And then we're supposed to just learn something about, I guess, what type of laws we're supposed to pass via that study. But studies tell you absolutely nothing. Even if the numbers are, you know, quote unquote accurate, they're not telling you anything about, A, about how human beings are actually interacting. And they're certainly not telling you anything about what's right and wrong from sort of a moral perspective, right. whatever your sense of morality you might have. It's kind of like if you tell me 53 percent of the homeless people in Denver are have, have college degrees. I want to know how many homeless people there are because I'm kind of going to assume that maybe you studied 100 people and 53 of them had college degrees. But in reality, there's like 100,000 homeless people. I don't know how, what the number is. It's a, it's a crazy amount, but there's no way to know. I mean, you're acting you're acting like these people go out and study every single homeless person. It doesn't even make sense. You're just taking us. You could go into a really, really bad neighborhood. Get your statistics. Oh, man, Denver's horrible. Go into a really, really nice neighborhood near Cherry Creek. Oh, I mean, the homeless rate's really, really low in Denver. You see what I mean? Right. And you've just learned nothing once yeah, again. Yeah, <laughs> right. If, any, if anyone's ever taken a statistics class, the main intuition in that class is that it's really, really hard to prove anything. Anything at all. That's, that's really the point. It's just that most things are null and void. They, 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 they can't be proven. That, that's the main intuition. If you didn't get that, that you didn't you failed statistics. <laughs> so what sort of methods actually do work, I guess, on, on people your age, people that you, you interact with, um, sort of, I guess, in college or, or otherwise? Uh, are you able to sort of send people at least down? Obviously, you're not going to change anyone's mind overnight. And I know that's, that's a big reason you're putting so much time into the podcast and the books. But in your personal interactions, are you ever able to sort of uh, open people's eyes a little bit? I, I know how you like to question people in class when they're spitting out studies and that sort of thing. But have you, have you found any any methods where you can actually pique someone's interest to the point that they will go down their own rabbit hole a little bit? Oh, I think the problem with a lot of libertarians is that they themselves don't have the facts on command that would sway almost anybody. The, the, the truth is, Mark, I sway a lot of people. I have people message me all the time like, wow, like, how'd you learn all this stuff? Like, are you a genius? And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Please don't ever call me a genius. I'm just someone who reads every single day. If you read, you'll become maybe smarter than me. Maybe there's people with higher IQs that could do much more than me. I'm only I can only do I can only do what I can, but all I do is read. Uh, that's the only thing that separates me from someone who uh, knows what they're talking about and someone that you know maybe they can argue against minimum wage. Great, you know, w- w- without any of my history and economics knowledge, like I knew that minimum wage was bad. Like I heard Walter Williams describe it, and it's like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. That's not enough though, because the problem is if you get into a debate with a uh, smart Marxist and you know, I, I'm not saying they're right, but there are smart Marxists in that. They'll pull out fact after fact after fact on their side. They'll tell you something about like the first international from 1864 to 1876, and you want to know what they're talking about. But if you do know what they're talking about, you could really, really crush them. And to me, that's very, very satisfying. I really, really hate when I see libertarians get beat in any sort of debate because our, our, our ideology is so sound. It's so obvious when you really think about it. Like there's, there's an argument for everything. 
some people, I think, let themselves get destroyed. And I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Matt Kunal. I don't know if you know him. He's a character. He's he's the leader of the Libertarian Socialist Caucus. I was talking to him one day, and I was just like, hey, you might want to check out this book, uh, Mutual Aid in the Welfare State by David Beto. It talks about how, for example, um, healthcare, a whole year's worth of healthcare costs like a day's wages back, you know, so-and-so. And he was just like, oh, that sounds like a slippery slope. And I'm just like, well, Matt, what do you read? And I have a screenshot of this that just kind of destroys him forever. But he was just like, I'm not really a book reader. I learn everything through communication. So anyone that tells you they learn everything through <laughs> communication doesn't know anything. They, learn, they learn don't, don't know anything. And he's going to be the one that tells us to go read Kropotkin or like, you know, a few hundred years of anarchist, left anarchist history. But he's not really a book reader. So I just you know, get a sense for who you're dealing with. Like once you actually decide to read economics and history, it's you become less fond of the government and not more. I know you're a big Rothbard fan, and I know he's had a lot of influence on you. What do you think it is about uh, Murray Rothbard's approach, his style, uh, that it is that has obviously influenced so many libertarians out there, including yourself? It was funny. We were having uh, this conversation that we had a little event out here in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. We had uh, Dave Smith out here, Jason Stapleton, who lives out here in L.A. now, and uh, myself and Brian McWilliams were all there, and we had a little Q&A session. And, uh, you know, we were talking about being effective and I, I guess Jason Stapleton had, had sort of brought up, well, you know, um, you know, f- for all of us in here that, that love Murray Rothbard, you know, like who outside of this room really knows who Murray Rothbard was? Like, is he really that influential in the world? And then Dave, Dave kind of brought up the point, well, how many people are in this room today partly because of the work of Murray Rothbard. And I'd say maybe 70 to 80% of the people in the room raised their hands. So I think that is kind of the point. Now, maybe someone like Murray Rothbard might not be influencing people in the grand scale as, as in like he is not taught in, in most colleges and that sort of thing and where he's not mentioned in, in most political dialogue in the mainstream. But look at how many people he has influenced to just dive into these ideas even more. And now these are the people, these are the us that are now out there engaging in this conversation. And, and those many, many people do have an influence on the debate, even if it's not maybe even they're not holding up maybe necessarily Rothbard a Rothbard poster while they're doing it. Those ideas are seeping out in so many ways. Once you read Rothbard, you're completely destroyed. There, there, there are no arguments left. You, you see, the thing about Rothbard people, he took libertarianism to its logical conclusion. Utilitarianism isn't libertarianism. Utilitarianism is saying that you know we just kind of want the best end result, whatever the cause might be, whatever the, the means might be. Libertarianism is about not violating other people's rights and and cooperating with other people. And there's only two ways in which people can relate to to one another, and that's voluntarily or coercively. You can either hit one another and take their stuff, or you can you know live side by side, which you'll find that you'll be able to produce a lot more stuff if you just cooperate with more people, because we all each have idiosyncratic views and perspectives and skills. So. I would be kind of lost in the world if I was just stuck here with my economics knowledge. I wouldn't have anything else. I need people like you and everybody else to like fill in the gaps for me. That's kind of why vol- that's kind of why voluntarism is a goal. So when I talk about things like anarcho-capitalism, people are like, "Oh, well, anarchy's never going to exist." When has it ever existed that the three functions of, of government have ever held? And, and furthermore, can't we at least get back to three functions of government before we argue for anarchy? And that's my point that, you know, we're so far from the three functions of government. They call us crazy, but we're the only ones that want to move backwards. They're fine with compromising in 10 different areas uh, just to say that, oh, well, you know, we, we want some tax cuts here and there. Well, you, you, you do want to spend a few billion in the military, right? You don't want to get rid of that. You want to spend uh, a few billion on welfare or, you, don't, you, you know, most Republicans are even against getting uh, rid of most forms of welfare. 
So like, what do you, what do you say to all that? What do you say to all that when you have these conversations with people? Well, <laughs> that's the real question. I don't know. I guess with some people, I don't even know where to start. I, you know, I, I would say like, choose your battles wisely. You're not going to convert everybody. Like I said, you're probably your best chance is like finding people who are like more or less apolitical, um, people that they don't really know what's going on in the world, but like you, you turn them toward a certain direction and they just fired up. No, plenty of people. No, plenty of people like that. I was like that. I never thought I was going to be hosting a podcast or uh, doing the ten other things on the side that I haven't revealed I'm going to do yet. But I mean, th- things just kind of happened, and you'd be surprised. I-, I remember my brother gave me a book when I was like 16, and this was before I was even into books. And he told me like, I wish I had read this book when I was your age. And I read the book, and the basic idea of the book is when you think big, big things happen. And man, that sounds so cliche when you're 16, like, oh, big things happen. But it really didn't hit me till like I started to do what I started to do. And I was just like, hold on. What's the difference between me at age 25, almost 26 and me at age 24? Well, at age 24, I was thinking day to day. I was even with my meals thinking day to day. But like once I started to like add some structure, once I started to think like long term, everything started to open up. I started to make more friends. Uh, I started to have more opportunities. My attitude started to change because like, as you start to succeed, you start to feel better. And I'm sure you feel this too, Mark. It doesn't matter what people say to you at some point. Like, you know, they can't take away your success that you've had. It doesn't matter what, it it doesn't matter what they say. They they can't take away certain things from you. They could take away, someone could come kill me and or break my camera, but they can't take away the 45 podcast episodes I've done. You know what I mean? They can't take away. How many podcast episodes have you done? Well, personally, this episode you're on right now will be the 347th episode of, of my main podcast. Yeah. We have a couple spinoff shows and, you know, it's over 500. But me personally, I, this is uh, we're approaching 350 here. That's set in stone, buddy. Those buddy, those episodes are downloaded, shared around. That's out there in the world forever. That is your mark in the world, and you know this is my mark in the world per se. Absolutely, and a lot of people will, and not really in libertarian circles so much, but non-libertarian people that are I'm friends with, they'll they'll think it's cute that I have a podcast, or they'll think it's oh that's nice that he has this hobby. And once in a while, someone will ask me like how many downloads we get. Now I don't get Joe Rogan downloads, but you know, we get a decent amount. We get a, you know a few thousand per episode uh, several times a week, and they're like oh oh really? Because they a yeah. lot of people are expecting it's- to hear like twenty. You know they really don't think that there could be any. Any amount of people right. beyond a tiny, tiny niche that would actually be as interested in this stuff as I am to uh, to actually listen to a podcast. It's a lot more than you think. Um, YouTube number YouTube numbers are very small. Like if you look at my YouTube numbers, very, very small. But I have tons of friends who are just like, "Hey, love your podcast, love your podcast." I don't know these people. They're they're, right. they're they're my friends. If if you're a libertarian and you care about liberty and like you you care about the non-aggression principle, you are my friend. Just reach out to me and hey, uh, I'm just adding you to my friends list, right? But um, yeah. That, that, that's basically how I see it. It blows your mind even more, and I'm sure this will happen to you more often as you continue to grow and continue to produce your podcast and other works. When you actually meet human beings in real life that say your your what you have done has influenced them, that is mind blowing. We just had you know, oh, like yeah. I mentioned, this meetup we had in Los Angeles. We just had another one of those this past weekend, and um, it's actually there's people that actually will come up to me and say, "Hey, I've been listening to your podcast for years. I love what you do. It's really had an influence on me." And that, even though I see numbers before that, so. I know the evidence that human beings are there listening exists. It's a totally different scenario when you yeah. actually see a physical human being t- looking you in the eye and telling you this. It is a, it's a, an amazing thing. A lot of people listen. Not everybody tells you they listen. Some people are, are truly off in the shadows. Some people don't like to have their personal profile on Facebook or whatever. They just kind of observe. 
and some people do do know who you are. I mean, it's it is a crazy feeling. I obviously I haven't done like live events, but I've had plenty of people reach out to me. Like I said, I don't know who these people are. They're not, they're my friends now, but you know, it, it does feel crazy. It it feels like you know, even if like one person like a month reached out to me, that would make it all worth it. It's like wow, like I get to reach one person a month. Uh, I need to like make my show twice as better now. We try to reach two people, uh, you know. But I, I, I know I'm making a difference. You're making a difference. Tom Woods makes a difference. Um, I think the amount of lives we change is priceless. Well, we probably won't ever match Ron Paul, but I, I don't think that's the point. I think if we can create any libertarians, these are just more people who are going to breed more libertarians. I think that's breed more libertarians, guys. <laughs> Literally, in some cases, breed them. I've already <laughs> have to. <laughs> I've already decided I'm going to name my first son Murray. So I, if I my my next partner is going to have to deal with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> my name's Steven. Nice to meet you. Uh, by the way, if we reproduce, the child will be named Murray. We'll talk about why later <laughs> on. It's not really first date material, but. <laughs> my name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, non-violent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. Uh, you know, I also wanted to mention. Now we were talking about this offline uh, last week. The, uh, the sort of the value of trolling sometimes, and uh, you know, a lot of people uh, trolls on the internet get a bad name a lot of the times. Probably for good reason. Often, I mean, a lot of trolls can be vile and nasty. Uh, but you did a little uh, kind of a real life trolling, you might say, pretty recently uh, when Madeline, Madeline Albright came to town. Can you tell us about that? So, just one thing people need to understand about that event: none of it was prepared. Um, the day that happened. God, I, I feel so bad. I, I'm blanking on the friend's name that told me about the post. Someone who actually lives in Denver was telling me, hey, this Madeline Albright <laughs> book signing uh, thing is going to happen. It's going to happen at a, a church. That was that was like the, the double. I, I just couldn't get past that. I was just like, I have to go there. So it was a sold out event. It was at a church. It was at I think it was called Trinity United Methodist Church. It was like 800 plus people there, like 800 plus people there. It was like I wish I had video footage of me like in line, like getting up. I was shaking like this woman off to the side was just like, hey, are you OK? I was just like, oh, so excited to talk to her. <laughs> I was real excited, man. All right. So anyways, I'll just preface by saying um, she probably thought you were excited for different reasons than you yeah. actually were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a sold out event. I scrambled around. I found a girl who was selling a ticket. got the ticket, had my friends drop me off. The first thing I tried to do, and it didn't go too successfully, like I didn't have any, I didn't have any questions planned. Like if you look, like it was all really unorganized. If I would do it again, I would do it better. But it's for next time. But anyways, I started interviewing people. I'm just like, you know, well, how would you define fascism? Uh, who do you think's killed more, communism or fascism? Um, and by the way, I, 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 this is the question I would end with. Uh, I knew this politician the other day 
who they said, you know, back in 1996, nearly half a million Iraqi children died and that was worth it. And I was just like, what would you think about someone that said something like that? And they were just like, oh, that's that sounds like a pretty horrid person. And I was just like, oh, that's Madeleine Albright, the event you're going to. And they're just like, oh, you know, they, they didn't know they didn't know what to say. So uh, I eventually did that. Uh, the funny thing about that is the last person I interviewed was one of the door holders, like one of the people that actually worked there. And what happened? She came up to me and she was just like, do you have a ticket? I was just like, oh, hell yeah, I got a ticket. And I pulled my ticket out because she thought I was just interviewing people to harass them. And I was just like, oh, and I pulled out my ticket and she she got all confused. And I was just like, can I, can I interview you? So she's the last person I interviewed in that video that you can see. And she's kind of off camera. But that was hilarious because when I went inside, I asked her, I was just like, hey, did you get a ticket? And she's like, oh, no, I work for the event. I'm just like, oh, shit. <laughs> she she know, she kind of knows my plans. So you get in the church. The first thing they do is hand you a copy of the book. Um, as I walk in, they hand you a book, and Madeline Albright's sitting kind of in the back, a little bit guarded, just kind of off to the side. She's signing all her books. Um, I, I still have the book, and it's signed. I I, I will never touch that page. It's like death. <laughs> and in fact, I just got to say, I've 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 been in a lot of churches. I've never felt death in a church like the way I did there, man. It was. I didn't. I don't know if other people felt it like other people that knew. But I got in there. I I was really really nervous when I got in there. I didn't know what I was going to do because first of all, it was supposed to be a book. For all you, for all you know, she can stare at you and your soul will melt away. Oh man. Well, no. This is. I I, I thought I was going to get there and there was going to be a book signing. So I thought you stand in line and you eventually get to her. I was going to hand her a copy of Fool's Errand with a footnote and and Fool's Errand leading to when she said that thing back in 1996. And I was just going to get that on camera, record that. We got kind of all duped on that. That that never happened. You you got handed a book that was already signed. That was kind of lame. So my my last opportunity was she gave like a big long speech. She she was saying crazy things like you know I I believe in the social contract. You know we need roads to survive. Blah blah blah. She literally said this stuff. You can go look in the, on the video. And uh, she had a questioning period after, and I was just like, man, I really really came here to get some better footage than just interviewing these idiots. I re I really really wanted to get up there and do what I wanted to do, so I got up in line, and I asked her, you know, exactly what you can go watch in the video. But basically, what happened? She started giving me this response, and by the way, she said back in 1996, and you can all go watch the video that half a million deaths was worth it. And she knew it was about children because if you watch the actual clip, like the first thing it shows is like a mutilated child. Like there was no question. And um, so basically what she said was, oh, back in 1996, I thought I was talking about like saving half, like was half a million children worth it, like to save them? And, you know, she, she, she said she heard it out of context like that, which is a, which is a lie. She's in a church. Yeah, if you watch the video, it's yeah. pretty, her original video from, from 96. It's very clear yeah. that the question was clear and that she knew what question she was answering. She's in a church of 800 plus people. Uh, I yelled out at the audience like, you all can go YouTube it. That's what I yelled out. And for some reason, like my camera shut off there. I think I like just ran out of camera space. But after that, like um, she started giving me this lie and I yelled back at her. I was just like, I have never accidentally said that half a million Iraqi children uh, dead is worth it. And this one girl came up from the side. She was screaming. She was just like, hey, sir, 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 uh, this way, this way. We need we need you to escort you out. And um, as she was escorting me out, this one woman in the front row was just like, my husband, sir. And I, I, I honestly, I, I was, I was so nerve wracked. I didn't know what to say at that moment. I would have totally, I would have totally taken that bite, but <laughs> they lead me out the back door or, or toward the back door. She grabs the phone out of my hand. Now I didn't really really, I was, I was kind of nerve wracked. Like I, I didn't grab it back right away. I was just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? She's like, can't let you leave with this evidence. <laughs> I think she, evidence I, of what? Yeah, that she, I think, Madeline I, Albright is yeah. a soulless liar. Yeah. She, she did call it evidence and she was just like, you know, you, we can't let you leave here with this. 
I was arguing with her for like 10 seconds and I like grabbed the phone out of my hand and I didn't, I, I burst out the back door. That was kind of a, a lucky thing that happened because it could be cops at the other side of the door and they would have probably tackled me. So I get out, I start running. Um, I'm running for probably about like two miles and <laughs> so the, you ran for two miles away from this church. Yeah. I'm in like, I'm in like dress clothes, like my full, you're suit. in better shape than I am. Yeah. My full <laughs> suit, my dress shoes. So I'm running for like a mile. I didn't think anyone was following me. I look back and there's this guy following me clear as day. He's definitely following me. Cause he's like, he's like this older man. Like he's like out of breath, like trying to like, he, he's not on a job. So, uh, uh, I eventually like, cut a corner and like, I thought I lost him. And like, he eventually like, he, he must've been like really chugging along and I didn't see, he like found me, started videotaping me. I was just like, what are you doing? And this is what he said to me. He said, you assaulted Madeline Albright. You've truly hurt her. And I was just like, well, you know, she kind of hurt a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't take that bite at all. And I, I started walking off and we split ways, but yeah, that was, I, I would do it again. I would do it more in a more organized way, but you know, I, I might be on like a hit list right now. Hey, it's if I, if it's I, your first live trolling. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll learn as, oh, yeah. as you go on here. Oh yeah. <laughs> I might be on a hit list, but, um, you know, I've done 45 episodes so far. Like I said, proud of that. <laughs> Yeah, and you are so you're actually doing a daily show, and obviously you're not doing a, a very long form format for every single one of those shows. But you get that content out there ever since you started. Uh, I guess uh, what five about ten weeks ago, just doing the math. Uh, so how, why did you decide to do a daily format? Was that was that a, a concerted effort that you put in for that for just because you wanted that sort of consistency that people know they can show up every single day? Or when well, what's basically uh, the, the entire idea behind the format of the podcast? I thought about it like, what if I do one show a week? I I have way too much to say. There's no, there's no possible way I'd be satisfied with that because I would read it. I would read a book the next day and like need to put out another episode. So, right. so I was like, what if I did three days a week? Well, hell no. I mean, like I said, I'm just going to read another book the next day and like I'm going to want to put out another episode. So five days a week, I, I would do seven days a week if I could, Mark. But like obviously, like I do need to eat sometimes. Um, but I just have so much to say. And I I can only really thank Tom Woods for and Liberty Classroom. I've been on Liberty Classroom for like two plus years. That'll change your life. Um, and just you gain such a plethora of knowledge and I think at some point you lose track of it and you start talking to other people like, oh my God, like I can just interject in so many ways. So I, I can't thank, uh, Tom Woods and you know, the Mises Institute and people like that enough. Uh, Walter Block was a guy that converted me into anarcho-capitalism. I don't know what you identify as Mark. I've never asked. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess most people, I, I've, I've addressed this on the show, I, I think a few times. I think most people, if I describe my views would call me an anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> there you go. I don't like to put labels on myself for, for many reasons, but I mean, I, I would say that those are what my views most closely align with. Look, I could deal with minarchists. Like, I just want to hear you like most of the time talking down on government. I don't, I don't like right. minarchists that like all they do is talk about the three things they want government to do well it's like they can never bash government i've met people like that those aren't the minarchists that are my friend i have plenty of minarchist friends plenty um i well, and, and kind yeah. of taking a halfway position on anything just does not inspire yeah. people again going back to whether it's your professor who stood out or ron paul who stood out it's when you say things that stand out so far from the mainstream line and and maybe in many circles i guess minarchism might really stand out from you know from the normal debate but you know it I, i've never heard anyone just radically inspired by by a, a minarchist who says well i'm pretty much okay with the basics here but i just think we need to reduce a few things here and there no one gets out of their seat for that. I've told this story a few times before. My dad's obviously a minarchist. He's a more of like a neoconservative. I think I've swayed him over the years. I think I've I've left very little room for him to defend the military industrial complex. But um, I gave him a copy of Anatomy of the State. I'm just like I didn't think he would read, and I was just I was just be surprised if he read it in the next year or ten. 
And so I handed it to him and he was just like, oh, I'll go read this. He he goes into the next room, um, closes the door and like comes back to me an hour later. And it's just like, I agree with every single thing in that book. And I was just I, 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 I didn't know what to say. I was just like, you agree with everything? He's just like, yep, everything. There's really nothing. There's, there's really, I guess my work here is done. Yeah, there's there's really nothing in that book that I can say is wrong. Um, and he he got like really emotional too. He's just like the motherfucking government, man. All they all they do is lie. All they do is guilt you into like you know giving up more of your freedoms. It's just, it's just all a big guilt trip. There's nothing really to it. There's nothing the government can do for you because government has to take away from someone to do something for you. So like most people wouldn't call uh, you know robbing a homeless person and, or robbing a rich person to give to a homeless person uh, charity. Most people wouldn't consider that charity. So no no arguments left when you've once you've read Anatomy of the State word for word. And when I say word for word, even the footnotes, the footnotes are like half that book. My God, I did a whole series on Anatomy of the State and just read the footnotes, read the footnotes in anything. Murray Rothbard, oh, sometimes half of his books are the footnotes. He he not only tells you extra things, but he tells you where to go. Murray Rothbard's uh, house is full of books. So this he, he's probably read more books than, you know, 100 people. And at the end of the day, that, that's all any of us can do. We can, whatever format it is, whether it's Murray Rothbard with his books and his speeches, or whether it's uh, you know us with our podcasts and videos and that sort of thing, we can only tell people so much of what we believe and, and what there is out there and, and describe our philosophy. But at the end of the day, it's really just about interesting people enough to send them off into their own sort of rabbit hole and their own research, because uh, the, people do need to really come to their own conclusions. They, they may be inspired by the ideas you're going to hear, or by the ideas you're going to put out there, but it's once they decide to take that action and actually go down those rabbit holes, go read those footnotes, go listen to the books that get mentioned on a certain podcast, that's when they're sending themselves on their own journey, and that's when people are really able to grow, when they have taken charge of their own, uh, I guess, philosophical uh, adventure (laughs) into uh, learning the truth or whatever their version of the truth is. It's when they really feel like they are the one guiding it, not being hammered, not having all the points hammered to them by somebody else and having it shoved down their throat when they take charge of that journey themselves that they really you know people really change their views oh i think about how many people i used to talk to and i've been in college for many years because i changed my major many times but when i was first back in college i people would make political arguments and i would disagree but i didn't really know i didn't have the facts on command i think about how much i say now people people don't like to talk about taxes when i'm in the classroom because i just always have a point to it (laughs) and I, i always make them look really really silly like you understand about these kids like I, I say the question in such a polite way that they're listening to it and they actually don't have a response or just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like I it, it completely 180s what I just said and uh, it, it's unfalsifiable for me right now. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like, well, I, I, I'm glad I got that response. I could I guess I could have gotten. Well, you're just you're just lying. That's statistics. I don't know where you got that. Uh, <laughs> so take it for what I get. Well, Stephen, uh, I don't know if you saw, I, I remember seeing this a few weeks ago, Barack Obama said something out there about, uh, and yes, I am actually going to compare uh, Barack Obama to this somehow. Uh, <laughs> he said, what, what we need to do to change things, what I want to see happen in the world is to create a million Barack Obamas. And he's not wrong in the sense of uh, strategy. That's a of lot of cocaine you... you're going to need, man. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of cigarettes and cocaine yeah. you're going to need. Um, <laughs> you have that crazy childhood. You don't have that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, at, at the end of the day, to to change the world, I mean, he, he wants to change it in a, in a certain way. So I don't want a million Barack Obamas, but I do want a million like Stephen Clydes. You know, I want we need a million people out there who are reading books constantly, who are constantly educating themselves and educating each other. And if we can do that within this libertarian community, if we can create more and more of each other, we basically need to be like Liberty uh, Magui uh, from the yeah. Gremlins movies. We need to go dropping little drops of water on ourselves and replicating us through many many other. 
people yeah. so that to a point where you have such a critical mass of people, it doesn't need to be a majority, just a strong enough mass of people who are so incredibly knowledgeable and so incredibly passionate that our ideas simply cannot be ignored. Absolutely, man. I think you're dead on. <laughs> I just, I agree with what you said. I think, um, there's so much that can be done. I, all this is worthwhile. It, 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 it does make a difference. It just not, it doesn't always feel like it. Like sometimes I go a week without anyone saying anything to me. And sometimes like 10 people reach out to me a day. It's like, holy, like, you know, raises my dopamine levels, like makes me feel good. So I mean, I think all of it's worth it. I think, um, Ron Paul revolution 2.0 is underway. It's just, uh, it's going a little bit slower. Gary Johnson's not a Ron Paul. Um, I, I don't know who who else is a Ron Paul. Even Rand Paul is not Ron Paul. Uh, it would just be awesome if we could just get a real libertarian in there. I, I support the Mises Caucus right now. I hope Josh Smith you know, becomes chair. I think that'd be a good starting point. Like Nick, Nicholas Starwork, I mean... Do you ever get? Are you are you an LP member by the way, Mark? I am an LP member. I was actually recently uh, invited. In a few weeks, I'm going to be uh, myself and my colleague Brian McWilliams are going to be speaking at uh, the Libertarian Counties uh, Convention here, at the Libertarian Party's uh, LA Convention. So uh, that, that that just came together. I don't have a clue what we're going to talk about, but uh, we'll be there. <laughs> I support supporting the LP, but like supporting the right people. But I'm sure you get those oh those emails. They're, they're always always asking for money in just like the worst ways. Some of their emails they send. Um, I don't know, like Nick Sarwick and like the people that do marketing, it's just really, really bad. It's really, really bad how they do it all. And like, I, I would like to reopen up an email. It's like talking about like individual liberty or something. It's just like always asking me for money. And I would like to see Nick Sarwick get out and someone else get in because I don't know if you've heard Nick Sarwick talk. He's okay in some things, but like why libertarian is the most sound ideology. It's very, very simple to describe. And like we were talking about earlier with Gary Johnson, like the NAP just goes over his head. Like he just, he just can't envision how the NAP will, will is the foundation of libertarianism. I, <laughs> so it's it's frustrating. I've heard of it. I just don't really understand it. So I'll just talk about well how we sort of have similar ideas to Democrats and similar ideas to Republicans, and that's why you should vote for libertarians. <laughs> Who's inspired by this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, may, maybe he screwed up on Aleppo because like he's been asked what's the NAP so, so many times. He like thought that was an he thought Aleppo is an acronym. <laughs> They're always asking me about these acronyms, so I'm presuming <laughs> this one is too. <laughs> like Gary, like you know what the NAP is, right? Well, like can you spell it out for me again? <laughs> it's been a great talking to you, Mark. I really appreciate you having yeah, me. Yeah, man, on, it's dude. been a blast. Well, before I let you go, why don't you just uh, take a minute to plug again, plug your podcast? Uh, I know you also, like I mentioned, contribute uh, your writing over at ActualAnarchy.com. Those guys are doing cool work as well. And uh, feel free to mention. I know you have some stuff in the works, some stuff you're not going to want to mention just yet. But feel free to plug away on anything else you've got going on. Sure. So yeah, you guys add me on Facebook if you like. Um, Stephen Clyde on Facebook. I'll talk to you mostly any time of the day. <laughs> um, always willing to talk about liberty, but you could find me at fourpeaceandliberty.com. That's where I hit, that's my main site where I have all my podcast episodes. And yeah, I would just say you know keep watching me and other people that are in my group for the for the future because big things are coming. Um, I just can't talk about a lot of it now. It's just uh, I want to, but just give it a little time, maybe a month or two, and you'll see some. You'll hear more of me. <laughs> Stephen Clyde is not going anywhere. You can rest assured on that. Stephen, it has been an absolute blast talking to you. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring, buddy. Thanks, man. 
All right, folks, there it is. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Stephen Clyde that I have been waiting to release to you for several weeks now. So I was very thrilled to finally bring it to you. Please do check out the Peace and Liberty podcast. Stephen Clyde is doing some great work over there and keep an eye on him. There's going to be a lot more coming from him down the road. And uh, it's, it's kind of fitting timing to air this now because as you heard me reference towards the end there, myself and Brian McWilliams did now at this point actually speak at the Los Angeles County Libertarian Party's convention this this past weekend. We're going to try to get some of the audio from that up, uh, probably for members of the Pride, so look for that over on Patreon. Once again, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty is where you can find all sorts of bonus content. Should be getting that audio up in the next couple of days, and it's pretty fitting because what I spoke about was a lot of what I ended up speaking about with Stephen Clyde towards the end of that conversation about how to inspire and create new libertarians. So if you want to hear that talk, just drop us, you know, five bucks or so a month. And it's all yours, along with all of our other great bonus content. Folks, do not forget to tune in to this podcast feed for the remainder of the week when Brian McWilliams will bring you another rant-filled episode of Electric Liberty Land and John Odermatt wraps things up on Friday with another hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until next time, folks, live long and live free. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll.